Well, let me ask you, if you would, to open up your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 9, to Romans chapter 9. Last week, we finished our verse-by-verse study of Romans chapter 9, and next week, we begin uh, moving into Romans 10 and uh, going verse-by-verse through that great chapter. But as I was thinking about these two chapters this week, Romans 9, Romans 10, and particularly the last verse of Romans 9 and the first verse of Romans 10, uh, it struck me that there are two very practical lessons there uh, that I didn't want us to miss. And so before we come to the Lord's table this morning, I simply want us to read again the last verses of Romans 9, the first verse of Romans 10, and I want us to see those two uh, very practical lessons. Now, as we read, I want to remind you that there are no chapter divisions in the original text. When Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome, he wasn't thinking in terms of chapter numbers and verse numbers. Uh, Those all came much later. And so in Paul's mind, Romans 9 flows right into Romans 10. In fact, many people would say that, uh, that it's really unfortunate that we split Romans 9 and 10 where we do, because really the first four verses of chapter 10 fit nice and neatly with the last verses of Romans 9, and maybe after Romans 10, verse 4 would have been a better place for the chapter to change. But That being said, I want us to read beginning in Romans 9, verse 30, and we're going to read through chapter 10, verse 1. And let me just remind you what we're looking at is the very word of Almighty God. Let's read it together. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith? But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Now, the first lesson that I want to bring to your attention is a lesson especially for anyone who teaches the Bible. I'm certainly thinking here about preachers. I'm thinking here about Sunday school teachers. I'm thinking about husbands and fathers as they lead their families. And in a unique way, I'm thinking here about moms and grandmoms. And I'll show you why I'm thinking about them particularly in a moment. But first, what is the lesson here to Bible teachers? And to help you see it, I want to do a super fast review of what we saw last week. So number one, we saw last week in this passage that righteousness is what we have to have before God 
to have his favor and to be his children. So righteousness, moral perfection, is the standard we have to meet to have the eternal blessings of God. Number two, we saw that Israel was given something that the Gentiles did not have, which if used rightly, would have led them to being righteous before God. Israel was given God's law. And God's law was a gift that the other nations did not have. And had Israel used that law rightly, they would have obtained the righteousness in the eyes of God. Number three, we saw last week that Israel used the law the wrong way, which was the way of trying to achieve their own righteousness before God through law-keeping. Israel treated the Old Covenant. Israel treated the law given to them at Mount Sinai as a covenant of works in which they believed it was necessary for them to earn, for them to merit their own righteousness before God through obedience. And Paul says this was never the intention of the Old Testament law. He even uses that phrase, as if it were based on works, meaning it never was. Uh, Number four, we saw last week that the right use of the law would have led Israel to receive the righteousness that God provides. The right use of the Ten Commandments, the right use of the second half of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, if Israel had used it rightly, it would have revealed to them their own sinfulness. It would have revealed to them their own depravity. The right use of the law was for them to be convicted by it. The right use of the law was for them to go and make sacrifices because of their sin, to be served by the priesthood because of their sin. And through the sacrifices and through the priesthood, God was preaching to the people of Israel that He alone could give them the righteousness that they need. God forgives sins. God atones. God imputes righteousness to unrighteous sinners. Have you ever heard the phrase alien righteousness? Sounds like something from the X-Files, right? Alien righteousness. But this is actually the message of the gospel. It's the message that the righteousness we need to be able to go to heaven is a righteousness that can't be found inside of us. It's not a righteousness that can be brought about by our own works. It's an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness that's outside of us and it must be given to us. It must be reckoned to us. It must be imputed to us. It must be accounted to us. Therefore, if you are a Christian, your salvation is not based on anything that you have done. Your salvation is based on what Christ has done for you. God accomplished a righteousness for us through Jesus. Jesus lived the perfect life we failed to live. Jesus died a substitutionary death. 
bearing our sins on his own shoulders, taking the punishment we deserved in our place if we believe so that when we come before God, we do not come pleading our own merit. We do not come pleading our own works. We say, Christ is my righteousness before God. Christian, isn't that on what you stand? Is that right? Now, what does the last verse of Romans 9 say? The last verse of Romans 9 says that Israel stumbled over Christ. The law was meant to lead them to Christ, but instead of letting the law lead them to Christ, Israel used the law in a way of self-righteousness, trying to create their own merit before God. So what is the lesson for Bible teachers? It's simply this. Make sure you're teaching the Bible the right way. Make sure you're not teaching the Bible as a list of do's and don'ts. Make sure you're not teaching the Bible as a morality code. Rather, are you teaching the Bible as a message that leads to Christ and receiving the righteousness provided by Him? So if you teach the Bible in any capacity, ask yourself these questions. Are you teaching the Bible as simply a list of do's and don'ts? Or are you teaching the Bible as God's message of saving grace? As you teach the Bible, do you treat its stories simply as a collection of morality tales? Like Hans Christian Andersen's tales that always have a moral to the end of the story. Is that the way you treat the stories of the Bible? Or... Are you helping your students to hear the old, old story of how a Savior came from glory, the Savorette on Calvary? What is the message of David and Goliath? Is it the message, be courageous? Is that the message? Is it the message, you should be brave against the giants that come against you in your life? Or is the message, See how David trusted his God and God proved himself faithful. In that case, it's even deeper because Goliath is wearing the symbol of the serpent on his helmet. And David is a, is a type of the Christ who is to come. You actually have a picture of Christ slaying the serpent in the picture of David and Goliath. The point is this. It's about God. It's about Jesus. It's not about be moral. It's about look to God and trust Him. We could read these stories in the Old Testament and say things like, be like Joshua. Be like Samuel. Don't be like Saul. Be like David when he slew Goliath. Don't be like David when he fell with Bathsheba and committed adultery. But shouldn't we instead be saying, See the God that Joshua trusted and how God came through by causing the sun to stand still in the sky. The walls of Jericho fell, not because of a loud shout or the sound of the trumpets. The walls of Jericho fell because God's people trusted His Word even when it sounded crazy. 
Even when God gave them instructions that made no sense at all, they trusted their God and God provided. How did David defeat Goliath? Not by trusting in his sling, not by trusting in his stones, but by trusting in the name of the Lord his God. Why did David commit adultery with Bathsheba? Was it not because he allowed his fleshly temptations to seem more precious to him in that moment than his relationship with God? Friends, at the end of the day, every single passage of Scripture is meant to point us to faith in God through Jesus Christ. And frankly, until we've seen Jesus in a passage, we haven't gotten the point. Why did so many of Paul's kin... Why did so many Israelites fail to be saved when they had the Old Testament? They had David and Goliath in their synagogue schools. They had the story of Jonah and the fish. They had the story of Samson and Delilah. They had the story of Moses and Joshua. They had all of these things that we teach in our Sunday school classes. So when Jesus came, why were they left unsaved? Because they were being taught those scriptures as a moral code to be followed rather than as the story of a God to be trusted. And so I simply ask us, how are we doing on that? In our small group Bible studies, are we seeing Jesus in every passage? Are we seeing how every passage calls us to humble ourselves and believe on God with a childlike faith? Or are we teaching the Bible as a moral code that calls people to lift themselves up by their own bootstraps before God? Now, don't get me wrong. Christians should be a moral people. There are moral lessons in the Bible. And yes, we should be bold and courageous. We should tell the truth. We should love our neighbor. We should give to the poor. But obedience to those commands will never be true obedience if we miss the greater command to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's as we believe on Christ that He changes us and helps us to obey from the heart. Until you are resting in Christ, living in His love for you, your good works will only be a facade. Jesus said the Pharisees were like whitewashed tombs, all nice and pretty on the outside, but death on the inside. And if you treat the Bible as a moral code, that's what you'll be too. You may have lots of outside good works. You may have been attending church since you were a baby. You may have been at church every single Sunday for 80 years. And anybody would say, oh, that's a godly man, that's a godly woman. But if you haven't believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, your good works aren't true obedience. I mentioned mothers and grandmothers earlier. Why? So many people in Israel had the Old Testament and still stumbled over Christ when He came. So many people in Israel failed to see that all of the Scriptures were pointing to this man Jesus But one of the exceptions in the first century, one of the small remnant of Jews who got it was Timothy. And how is it that Timothy got it 
when so many of his fellow Jews did not. Look with me really quickly at 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Just turn over there briefly. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, you can find it on page 995. 2 Timothy chapter 1. And let's see how Timothy came to see that salvation is found in looking to Jesus for righteousness. 2 Timothy 1, look at verse 5. Paul says to Timothy, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. So so Paul points to two major influences in Timothy's life that helped him to learn that the way of salvation is humble faith, not good works. And it wasn't the elders of his local synagogue that are mentioned here. It wasn't the pastors of his church. It wasn't his Sunday school teachers. In this case, it wasn't his father. It was his grandmother and his mother who helped him to get what so many around him did not get. What did Lois and Eunice do that made the difference in Timothy's life? How did they influence Timothy so that he turned away from a works righteousness and looked to God in humble faith? Look over at chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, because we're told what made the difference. 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 14. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So what did Grandmother Lois, what did Mother Eunice, what did they do that made all the difference? They made sure that Timothy in his childhood was acquainted with the Scriptures. For him, the Old Testament Scriptures. And while the Pharisees were in the synagogues teaching the Old Testament wrongly, while the Pharisees were standing at pulpits in the synagogue saying, do this, don't do this, earn your favor with God, be good enough, Lois and Eunice were teaching their grandson and son the truth because these were women of faith. These were women who had learned to look to God for their own righteousness. They knew their only hope was to be forgiven of their sins. And they taught Timothy the same. Paul says, even if all you have is the Old Testament, if you read it rightly, it is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you see that? He doesn't say if you read the Old Testament rightly, you'll come away with the impressions that you have to be good enough for God. He says, no, if you read the Old Testament rightly, what it teaches is the way of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Teachers, Is that how we're teaching the Old Testament when we teach it? Is that the central message that we're drawing from it? That it leads us to put our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. Let's make sure we're getting this right. The Bible is meant to lead us to faith. Let's be sure we're teaching it rightly. 
Now, that's a practical lesson. Would you agree? It's a very practical lesson that we can learn from the end of Romans 9. Second practical lesson. This one we're going to learn from the first verse of chapter 10. And let me just ask you, what are we about to do here as we come to the Lord's table? What are we about to do? Is it not true that we're about to do something wonderful? Jesus Christ is the host of the Lord's Supper. That's why we call it the Lord's Supper. He's the host here. And Jesus invites us to take of the bread and to take of the cup to celebrate His love for us. As we take the Lord's Supper, we are basking in the reality of how deep God's love for us really is. We are living, we are celebrating, we are basking in the reality that we have hope and we have joy and we have security and we have peace because of Jesus Christ. As we take the bread and the cup together, we know we are celebrating the appetizer of a great wedding feast that is yet to come. And we are saying to our own souls and we're saying to one another, we're saying before God, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Taking the Lord's Supper should be one of the most wonderful things we ever get to do. But even as we take the Lord's Supper, isn't there still a longing in our souls? And in particular, don't we wish that there were more people here with us? celebrating this great event? As we were singing a while ago, as we were singing our praises to God, don't we wish that there were more saved sinners in this room? That our songs would be booming forth with the honor that God deserves. As we hear the preaching of God's Word, don't we wish that every chair was full? that heads are nodding in agreement, the Word of God being received by human souls for their everlasting good. I mean, let's face it, as we come to the Lord's table this morning, there are empty seats at the table. It's the greatest feast you can celebrate on earth. And there's empty seats at the table. It is right for us to long that others were here with us saved sinners. It is right for us to be going out into the highways and the hedges, inviting all to come to Christ, to be a part of of God's family, to have a seat at the table. And it is right for us to grieve that there are so many, even in our surrounding community, that are not here. And they're not in any church. At the beginning of Romans 9, we saw how Paul's heart ached because his own kin were refusing to believe on Jesus Christ. Look back at the first three verses of Romans 9. Paul said, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And then, after expressing his deep longing, 
that his own people would come to know Christ, Paul taught us that behind Israel's rejection of Jesus is the purpose of God. And Paul taught us about election. And Paul taught us about God's sovereign plan. And what effect did the doctrine of election have on Paul? What effect did the doctrine of God's sovereignty and God's ultimate purposes have on Paul? Did it cause him to stop longing for his kin to be saved? Did it cause him to stop praying? Did it cause him to stop preaching? Did he say, well, God's ordained it all anyway, so I'll just leave it in his hands. I'm not going to worry about my kin anymore. Not at all. Because right after all of these great doctrines are taught in Romans 9, the very first verse of Romans 10, what do we have? Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Do you see how easy it would be to miss this? (laughs) It would just be so easy to gloss right over this verse and to miss this. But Paul says, in light of everything I've said, Notwithstanding all of this truth about God's ultimate purposes and the doctrine of election and predestination and foreordination and all of these big-minded high ideas, nevertheless, I am still praying for the people I love to know Jesus. And I want them to be saved. Why? Because within the sovereign plan of God, Paul knows that salvation is still open to every person who will call on God through Christ. Salvation is open to anyone who will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul believes that God hears the prayers of His people. So he says, I'm still praying for my kin. Yes, there will only be a remnant of Jews saved. Paul has taught that. But Paul was committed to praying as many as he could into the kingdom. There was no paradox in Paul's mind between the sovereign decrees of God and our responsibility and privilege to plead with God that He would save more. Save another one, God. Save another one, God. Save this one over here. Save save her, God. He was praying for his kin. And in the same way, Even after our study of a chapter like Romans 9, we as a church must be committed to praying for the salvation of the lost in our lives. Amen? Are we doing this, church? Are you committed to this? Are we committed to this? Do we believe that prayer works? A friend drew my attention this week to an old story from the Baptist press. I want you to listen to the story. I'm going to read just portions of it. It says, Marie Parrish knows what it is to be persistent in prayer because she prayed for her husband Bill for more than 50 years before he committed his life to Christ after nearly dying in a fire. Bill and Marie first met as high school students in Lauderdale County, Alabama. They dated for several months before Bill joined the Navy and was shipped to the Pacific front of World War II. Marie had accepted Christ at age 13, and she knew Bill was not a Christian, 
but she figured he would commit his life to Jesus shortly. I was naive, she said. I thought that when anybody got grown and could think straight, they would become a Christian. I figured as soon as Bill got out of the service and we started going to church together, he would become a Christian. It wasn't the real world, but I had lived a sheltered life. Well, during the Battle of Guadalcanal, Japanese forces sunk Parrish's ship, the USS Atlanta. Of the 700 men on board, Parrish was one of only 350 who survived. After the battle, he returned home on leave. While I was home on a 30-day leave, he said, I found the girl I had left behind and we married before I went back to sea as I had to wait for my next assignment, the USS Boston, Bill said. She had been praying for me while I was away, and she continued to pray for me for 55 years after we married. When Parrish was discharged from the Navy in 1945, he and his wife moved to Nashville, where Bill went to work for the U.S. Postal Service. Though Marie became actively involved in a local church, Bill remained uninterested in Christianity. I always knew there was a God, and I knew that he sent his son Jesus Christ, but I had no relationship with them, said Parrish. You might say I got interested in the things of the world and just forgot about God. The years flew by and I just didn't get any closer to God. I was just doing what I wanted, what I felt like doing, he said. But despite Bill's indifference to spiritual matters, Marie continued to pray daily for his salvation. In addition to her own prayers, she solicited the prayers of the deacons at her church and Christians all around the world whom she met on mission trips. I understand the deacons prayed for him every time they met, she said. And every time I went on a mission trip, I asked them, please pray for my husband. In 1953, Bill nearly lost his life a second time when a car hit him as he delivered the mail. He spent 27 days in the hospital, but he still would not surrender his life to Christ. In 1998, God finally got his attention. The parish's house caught on fire, and both of them passed out from smoke inhalation. Had rescuers not dragged both Bill and Marie from the house, they would have died. Four more seconds, and it would have been too late, we were told by the medics, Bill said. I was in the hospital 74 days. In five weeks of that time, I was in the burn unit at Vanderbilt Hospital. My wife and I are considered miracles by most everybody who has heard the facts. During his recovery, the members of Inglewood Baptist cared for Parrish by meeting his physical needs and telling him again and again how to begin a relationship with Christ. And through their witness, Parrish began to consider Christianity. When we had this last one, the fire, and he came so close to death, I think that changes a lot of people, Marie said. And I think that through everything that happened, so much love was poured out on us. On Easter Sunday, 1999, Bill finally came to a point of brokenness over his spiritual condition at age 78. And he decided to commit his life to Christ and to make a public profession of faith at Inglewood's Easter service. There was hardly a dry eye in the church, Marie said. People, not only me, but a lot of people had been praying for him for many years. After Bill's conversion, 
Marie said she just wanted to thank everybody who had prayed for her husband's salvation. I tell you how thrilled I was. I called a preacher in England because he had asked me if my husband ever became a Christian to let him know. I called him that Sunday afternoon, she said. Since Easter of 1999, Bill's life has been transformed. I attend church regularly and pray I am drawing closer to God at all times and in many ways, he said. My goal is to show God I appreciate the way he watched over me during so many wayward years of my life. God is so good. Bill's attitude towards church also changed. He thinks everybody ought to be in church on Sunday. He didn't used to think that, Marie said. He can't understand some of the things people who call themselves Christians do now. Before, he never thought about it. Now he visits hospitals, he visits nursing homes, he goes to funerals. A lot of things that we just didn't get to do together before. Bill's salvation demonstrates God's power to transform any life. And Mount Hermon, I want you to listen carefully to this last quote from Marie Parrish. This dear elderly saint speaking similar to the Apostle Paul in Romans 9 and 10. She said, I just believe that anything that happens, happens in the Lord's will and in the Lord's timing. You hear that? I just believe that anything that happens, happens in the Lord's will and in the Lord's timing. Now, did her belief that everything happens in the Lord's will mean that she didn't pray? Just the opposite. She prayed for 55 years and got everybody around her to pray. Mount Hermon, are we praying? For whom specifically are we praying for God to save? There is more to be done after we pray. We have to open our mouths. We need to invite people to hear the gospel preached. We need to be persistent in our invitations to church. We need to offer to pick people up and to bring them here to hear the gospel. There's so much more to be done after we pray, but there's nothing more important to be done until we pray. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And so as we come to the Lord's table this morning, I simply want to come with this encouragement. That as we rejoice in what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us, let us have a fresh resolve that we will give ourselves to prayer that the next time we meet together to do this, there may be newly saved sinners fighting their seat with us around the Lord's table. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.